Oh, hi, I'm Alan Gannett. And I'm Shane Snow. And you're listening to Creative Hotline, the call and advice show dedicated to helping creatives reach their full potential. And today, we're answering questions about creative identity. How do we build one and how does our identity relate to the world around us? So should creators use pseudonyms? One listener, a teacher, asks us how they should talk about creativity in the classroom. And a parent asks, should they label their child a creative or are they adding undue pressure with that? All that and more in this episode of Creative Hotline. Creative Hotline, leave your question at the... Hey, Alan and Shane, this is Max calling from Austin, Texas. Love the podcast. My question for you both is about pseudonyms. Some of the most famous creators in the world from Eminem to Dr. Seuss have used pseudonyms behind their creative work. And I want to know what you think are some of the benefits of doing that, how you can go about creating a truly unique identity, and why someone would think about using a pseudonym versus their own identity. So... I've had this like fantasy of having a pseudonym. I don't have one, but I, I think it'd be really cool on some level. What, you have what would your pseudonym be? Control. Definitely, definitely something that sounds very sort of like out there. You know, I love John LeCar. I don't know if you pronounce it right, but his mm-hmm. like real name is like Cromwell or something. And he was like, okay, if I'm going to write spy novels. I have to sound more mysterious. Like that's my vibe. I want to sound more mysterious. I, uh, I actually, some of my friends, uh, once we were in Mexico and everyone ran out of money and I was the only one with cash on me <laughs> and anytime they needed to buy something, I made them call me El Banco <laughs> in order for me to loan them some cash. And, uh, and so that would be my pseudonym for sure. El Banco. I don't even want to know how you were in that situation. Like, why were we, why were we in Mexico with no money? This, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a story for another type of podcast. We'll, we'll leave that there. I mean. When I think about pseudonyms, I think what's interesting is there's actually sort of two variations of why people would want them. I think one is all about the idea of the relationship or the emotion you're evoking from the audience, right? And this is sort of the John LeCar where you want to sound mysterious. Mm-hmm. You know, J.K. Rowling, when she wanted to write her new series, which is a crime series, she used a different name, Robert Galbraith, because she didn't want to evoke the sort of all of the fame and fantasy and all the stuff that comes with being J.K. Rowling. And I I think that's interesting. But there's also sort of another model, which is more of maybe a thing from history in some lens, but the idea of using a pseudonym for anonymity. How do you pronounce that word? Anonymity. Anonymity. Okay, there we go. Anonymity. And we see this, I always think about like the Federalist Papers, right? But historically, there was a huge element of using a pseudonym for free speech you know, people yep. today use pseudonyms sometimes because they want to write uh, a book about people who are alive. But there's actually different reasons to use a pseudonym. So, I yeah, I think about uh, Silence Do Good, right? Ben Franklin's uh, pseudonym because he was too young to write to the news for the newspaper, but he was also so brilliant that he had to to write these letters and had to get his voice out. So the pseudonym helped him, uh, you know, break the the ceiling or whatever. There's a uh, a woman who I'm blanking on her name, uh, but a woman who it turns out was the uh, the songwriter for a lot of famous musicians in the 50s, including Elvis, who wrote under her father's name because they wouldn't have let a woman write the uh, the music back then. Uh, so there's that thing as well. Using a pseudonym 
to overcome a bias that might exist if people know who you are, which is sad that that has to happen. Hopefully in our world, that doesn't have to happen as much. But the one that I think is really interesting is I recently started reading a book called The Alter Ego Effect that is uh, basically about the psychology of giving yourself an alter ego in order to uh, put yourself in a place where you can do things that would normally be scary for you. And I think that using a pseudonym in, uh, say, in writing or maybe in you know pro wrestling or something might help you overcome your inner resistance uh, and, uh, and help you kind of pretend to be who you need to be so you can perform in the way you know you can perform. And I'm, I'm not through the whole book yet, but I think that is a fascinating idea of using the pseudonym as a way to help you overcome your own internal block. So I'm a big fan of that. Okay, El Banco, I see you. <laughs> I don't even know, what would El Banco make you feel more, more of like a capitalist? I don't know. I, I think of it as, uh, actually, you know, I think that's why I invoked pro wrestling. I think he works <laughs> You're sturdy like a bank. Ropes. Yeah, exactly. He slams you to the ground with the full weight of the uh, capitalist you know, society. Capitalist society. <laughs> well, we are going to go into a segment, and this one I am excited about because it's titled "Is It Rude?" So, I found this article, which is a digital etiquette expert, and she was describing what situations it's okay to text or not to text. And I thought, you know, obviously Shane and I being sort of classic millennials, we are right in, the, in that generational, we hit that spot. I want to see if Mr. Shane, the millennial, could answer correctly these questions. Are you ready, okay. Shane? Sure. So to text or not to text. First up, when asking a favor of someone, is it okay to text or should you not text? Well, my blanket default mode is to text because I hate phone calls, but I think that is a product of my generation. And, uh, you know, one could say cowardliness. Honestly, being a journalist has helped me get over that because you have to call people on the phone as a journalist. I think if you're asking a favor, what I think the best etiquette is, is to text someone to tell them you'd like to ask them something uh, as a courtesy and ask if you can call them to talk through it. I think the uh, that would be the give them the warning, but then uh, don't hide behind the screen when you ask for the favor. Have that conversation in real time so you can address their concerns if you need to. So Elaine Swan, our digital etiquette expert, says that it is okay to ask routine favors over text. So things like, can you pick up uh, milk for me if it's your sure. spouse? But for anything more significant, a la what you're saying, Call. So good job, Mr. Millennial. You got the first one right. Now, here's our next one. What about when delivering good news? Should you text or should you call? I think good news is best delivered in person with balloons and a hug. <laughs> uh, so I think between text and call, I think it depends. I think if you, you're not going to be interrupting them with the good news, then, uh, then call them up. I think when I get an unannounced call, I kind of freak out. So I would prefer it on my end if, uh, you know, if you, Alan, wanted to call to give me good news, like we just hit number one of every podcast ever or whatever. Uh, I, I'd love if you texted me and say, Shane, I have some awesome news. Can I call you? If you say, if you text and say, Shane, we need to talk and then you call me, I'm going to be freaking out. But then if you're like, 
we're the best in the world. We have great news. Congratulations. We're trillionaires. Then, uh, you know, I, that would be worth the surprise. But, uh, but I, I like the warning before the call. But I think deliver good news in a more personal way if you can. So you are actually maybe even more etiquette-y. I don't know if that's, that's not a word. Etiquette-y than, the, than um, our etiquette expert. She says that if it's big news you're texting, it should only be good news. So she says it's okay to text good news. I don't know if I agree. Yeah. I don't know if I agree. But there we go. I, mean, I think it's not bad. I'm not offended not if offended. I get good news over text. Okay, here's the last question. This is, this is, this is the real, this is the hard one. Okay. To text or not to text? Asking someone out on a date. I think that's fine. That's when, when Sylvia and I met, it was all over text, uh, the the date coordination. We did meet in person at first, so there is that. But I think asking someone out on a date is perfectly fine. Oh, she says you are oh. wrong. Asking someone out on a date should always be a phone call. And then she went on to add, uh. which I think this part I really don't agree with. She said... The same goes for breaking up with someone. You should not break up with someone over the phone. It, that has to be in person, I think. I agree. You should definitely not break up with someone over text. Fun story. When I was in freshman year This in college, doesn't sound like it's going to be a fun story. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. I was dating a woman in, uh, who was in another state. We were doing long distance, and she broke up with me over MSN Messenger. Oh, I mean, that's not even, who even, that's, that's not even a fun retro text. moment. Yeah, lower than text. <laughs> With that, let's go back to the voicemail. Hi, Alan and Shane. This is Hunter Motz, uh, longtime listener, second-time caller. Um, one of the things that uh, has been noted with kids, and I see it a lot, is, is that little kids always think that they're creative. Uh, but by the time they get to middle school, a lot of them have come to believe that they aren't creative and they never can be. And that's an impression that sticks with people often for their whole lives. What do you think we can do to do a better job as educators to help kids maintain that view of creativity? And what do you think it is that we're doing to them that is convincing them that that's just not who they are? I think this is such an important question. And I would say that the most qualified person to answer it that I've encountered is a man named Sir Ken Robinson. He has a great TED Talk called Do Schools Kill Creativity? So if you're listening to this question and it really resonates, you should totally watch that TED Talk. That would be my first recommendation. <laughs> I, I think answer, to by the way, is, is they do, right? Like he's pretty down on schools. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing about this question is we're painting schools with a very broad brush I don't like to generalize so much. We could say public schools in America, the core curriculum, you know, that would be a fair way to, to say it. But I think there are schools that are more thoughtful about, uh, you know, indulging kids' creativity. I personally really like the constructionist uh, philosophy of have kids make things and use the making of things to get them interested in learning how things work. Uh but, uh, but I, I do think that if a education system is teaching kids what to think rather than teaching kids to explore and to debate and to think critically about what people tell them to think, then I think that's where creativity gets squashed. I, I also think there's a lot of economic incentives going on. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is if you look at the school system in America, and I'm talking sort of in general, right? So I'm going to be more of a, I'm going to generalize more than Shana's. If you look at the school system in America, it's very oriented towards like 
1965 economy, where it's we want to train people for high skill white collar jobs. And those are jobs like accounting, law, doctor, finance. Those are sort of the American dream. And obviously, one thing in America that we have, I think, as a pretty significant flaw is we equate sort of wealth with morality. There's a huge emphasis. I always thought it was funny. I had this moment where, you know, went to a city for college. I grew up in the suburbs and went to see for college, started meeting more people who are like very rich. And, you know, you sort of and maybe at a party or a cocktail thing. And someone's like, oh, well, like, you know, that person's rich. <laughs> and they, you talk, they talk about it as if that was some sort of credentialing, right? That was their sort yeah. of be all end all. That was, well, they're, you know, they have some sort of social worth because they're rich. Even though, as we know, a lot of people who've made a lot of money are deeply flawed people. They've made money in you know, ways, think about the Sacklers that are highly problematic. Mm-hmm. And so in America, we've equated for a long time sort of wealth and morality, wealth and goodness, actual capital, social capital. And I think our school system reflects that. And we drive people to these things that are very wealth driven. And as a result, I think we've also said historically that creative fields aren't those fields, right? If you want to become an actor, if you want to become a writer, if you want to do these things, well, you're going to be poor. I remember some kid joking in a class of mine growing up, it's like, oh, like you want to get an English degree? Like you'll become a barista. And that's a mindset that really affects kids and sort of conditions them away from creativity. So I think one thing that's happening is there's going to be a reckoning because if you look to the future, and we talked about this in a previous episode, if you look to the future, all of this sort of economic success is going to go to people with highly creative skills or highly, highly technical skills. Not, oh, you want to become an accountant. Like that's going to become increasingly a lower and lower importance job as more of that stuff can be automated. And so that to me is really interesting, this sort of social conditioning aspect of school. So one time I did a a big investigative journalism study with, uh, I guess, investigation with a, a team where we looked at the gender pay gap in America in the U.S. government. So we sent all these freedom of information requests. We built this huge database of how the government pays people by gender in every state, major city, and all that. And we found something really interesting in that. In uh, you know, People know about the pay gap. Women tend to make less, more, less money than men for the same job in America. In the government, it's still true. But where the gap emerges is in what types of jobs we have decided as a country that we value enough to pay more. And those jobs often come with uh, more of a gender skew. So state troopers in California make way more money than school teachers in California. And there's more men that end up as state troopers for, you know, varieties of reasons, uh, some of them artificial, than there are women and more women that end up as state school teachers. And we as a society have somehow come to this thing where we value state troopers more than teachers, so we pay them more. And I think that's a lesson that's stuck with me over the years about, that has to do directly with this. We pay people with vocational technical skills that we need more, but when the robots come and can do those for cheaper, we will pay them less. And we pay less money to the creative, the higher order of the uh, jobs that uh, you know can program the robots or that can think of and imagine the innovations we need in the future Uh, Those get paid less until they start companies and go public or whatever. And I think if we start to value those skills more now, start paying more for what we can get from that and teach kids 
that that is the path to success and value that in the time we spend in education, I think that would pay off for us and, and not leave us with some equivalent of the gender gap as it has to do with the creative versus technical craft skill gap, which soon will become a robot versus humans gap. <laughs> yeah. So Hunter, to answer your question very specifically, I think what we're saying is that there's an importance when talking about children and talking about their future to make clear that creative professions are something that society values maybe right now in this moment, not as economically as they will in 10 years, but by the time these kids grow up, definitely, because I think it's really hard to untrain people on the idea that money equals good. Like I don't think we're going to be able to change that, but I think we can accurately say that in the future, creativity equals money equals good. So. <laughs> Well said. So now is time for my favorite segment. It's a recurring segment in Creative Hotline, and it is called Creative Hotline Bling. Okay, so this is a segment where I ask Alan a question about Drake. And before I do that, I want to ask you, Alan, have you listened to any Drake since the last time we did this segment? No, I have not listened to any Drake since the last time you hazed me on this podcast. No, I have not. Okay, then this is going to be even more fun. <laughs> so here's your creative hotline bling question of the day. In Canadian rapper Drake's very first single he released on his very first album, the song Over from the album Thank Me Later, he says some things that I suspect you can relate to as a creative person, Alan. He says, so I'm riding through the city with my high beams on. Can you see me? Can you see me? Get your visine on. Y'all just do not fit the picture. Turn your widescreen on. If you're thinking I'm a quit before I die, dream on. So, you know, I know that you're driven like this, uh, Alan. But then he says, what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh, that's right. I'm doing blank. So what is Drake doing? So Drake's talking about people don't see what he's up to. He's working. He's not going to quit. He's going to be the best. He's going to make this happen. He says, what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh, that's right. I'm doing blank. So what is Drake doing? First of all, where do you find this? Like, I don't even understand. Are these like, are there lyric websites? Anyway, <laughs> this is so, okay. So he's in a car. <laughs> we know that. He's saying he's he's saying he's you know visine. So I'm guessing maybe he smoked pot, right? So he has some red eyes. So that could be the answer. He's as I learned from the last episode, he's a bit self-centered. But last time I guessed he was saying he was talking about himself. And in fact, he was talking about all his millions. And so part of me wants to say, I'm doing me. Because, but last time, that's sort of what I guessed, and I was wrong. So I don't know, but I want to get it right this time. Last time, I, I it was not good. <laughs> I'm going to guess that I'm doing pot does not have a good ring to it. So I'm guessing that Drake's lyric is, I'm doing me, M-E. Cue the success music. Oh, my God. This is, this is a big that's day. Right. Drake says, I'm doing me, and this is what I'm going to do till it's over, till it's over, but it's far from over. Damn. Wow. Woo. Nailed it, Alan. Nailed it, Alan. Oh, this feels victory. It's sweet. I'm going to play the music <laughs> one more time. Ready? 
Now that was, I feel good. I feel good. But I, I picked this question because we're talking about identity, right? Identity themed questions in this episode. He's doing me, he's doing himself and uh, his creative identity. It does seem to be very core to what he's doing. And he's willing to, I think, create for the audience. He's willing to take the feedback, but he's also willing to do what he wants to do because he thinks that that is going to be what people ultimately want. Listen, I'm glad that you feel so strongly about Drake. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on. Hi, Alan and Shane. My name is Hannah, and I have a question as a parent of a creative kid. My question is, is it a pro or a con to really focus on that strength of his? Um, like, am I giving him the freedom to really express himself? Or will it feel more like pressure that as a creative person, every single idea he has has to be creative? Um, I really do not want to mess up my child. <laughs> so thank you so much. And I appreciate your insights. I think this is interesting because it's it's different than the last question. They're, they're similar but different mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. as parents, a lot of parents want their kids to sort of be special and we use sort of language around that idea of specialness. But is that a good thing or a bad thing, especially when it comes to this idea of creativity? What do you think? So uh, I have to confess, not a parent except <laughs> of an adorable dog. Very adorable, and- Remy. We love Remy. Yeah. So, uh, and I know you are too. So I don't know that the dog analogy quite fits. You know, when my dog tries to be creative, I don't really let him. Usually (laughs) that creativity involves chewing something up. Uh, So I think that it's so valuable to develop a habit and a passion for exploring. So I think if at some point I'm a parent of a human, I'll want to lean into whenever my child is curious about something, interested in something, say, I want to do what my dad did with me. Let's take that apart. Let's understand how it works. Let's explore that. I think just developing that is great. I think putting pressure for there to be an outcome out of that may be a little much for a child, but I think helping them realize how that exploration can help them make things that are valuable I think that's perfect. I mean, I think that's such a great thing to do with kids. I think there's a lot of interesting research on intrinsic and extrinsic and this idea of autonomy when it comes to motivation. Basically, what the research says is that anything that you start to make extrinsic, usually people lose motivation around it. And you know, there's a bunch of interesting research around rewards, for example, where if you start rewarding certain behavior, then people start doing less of it over time or feel motivated to do less of it, which is really interesting because as humans, we have this deep desire for autonomy, right? To make our own decisions. And this isn't just for adults, it's for children too. So I actually have some hesitancy around using labels in terms of specificity. So for example, saying you are special, you are creative. I think the key thing, and I talk about this in my book, is if you look at the research, research actually shows that pretty universally, and there's more nuance, but pretty universally, we all have creative potential. And so I think it's about, for children, not viewing creativity as a yes or a no, but saying, hey, we all are creative. That's just a muscle that we have that we get to practice or not practice or do with what we want. I think when you start to label children, I think it's very hard to not accidentally make that extrinsic, right? Not to be, oh, you're creative and there's some positive feeling in there. I think it's much more about encouraging, supplying, whatever it is, giving kids the what they need to do the exploration that you're talking about, to sort of facilitate that intrinsic motivation and encourage it and not get in the way of it. To me, that's really where the magic happens. 
I mean, I think that's wonderful. For me, a big realization in my adult life that I wish I would have come across years before is this idea that we don't have one identity. Mm. And when we invoke a single identity, especially if it's an either or, you know, at work, it might be, I'm a designer and I'm not a salesperson. You know, in life, it might be, I'm this race and therefore, you know, not this race. I think as soon as we make identity a binary, it tends to get psychologically uh, trapping. And I think as soon as you start to recognize that all of us have lots of identities, it becomes psychologically liberating. It becomes more okay to not have an identity because you have lots of identities. It becomes less of this, you know, underlying battle or do I belong or do I not? Uh, Do they belong? What do I do about this? When you recognize that we have lots of identities, uh, you know, our demographic identities, identities based on our history, based on our hobbies, things we love, based on groups we belong to or used to belong to, you know, those identities change. And so I think as a kid, helping them recognize you're not a creative person or not a creative person. We're all creative. You are, you know, you're a lots of things. You know, you love Legos. You're a Lego person, but you also love dogs. You're a dog person. And you're also, you know, whatever. You're blonde. You're also a blonde person. You have all these things. And, and that's what makes us beautiful. You're not pigeonholing it. Fixed on one. Yeah. I, I think that is really helpful. Uh, But I I think to what you're talking about, so many things that we think of as identities actually are just capacities waiting Mm. to be developed. I love that. I love that capacities. Oof. You know, the thing I think, you know, connecting all these, all these dots, all these questions, I think what's really interesting is that when it comes to identities, I think as humans, we can sometimes overthink it, right? I think oftentimes we can spend a lot of energy on this. And in the end, one thing that's important to me is that all of us are creative and how we use that or exercise that is really where what's important. And if you want to use a pseudonym or not use a pseudonym, great. You do you, right? If you are a child and you want to explore or not explore, that's great. You do you. I, to me, I really like this idea of what you just said, this idea of thinking of these things as capacities rather than identities, I think is actually very liberating. So I love the idea of tapping into the gifts that you have, the people in your life that you can draw from, the resources at your disposal, and identities being part of those. And in doing so, realizing that you can create lots of things, you can do lots of things with those, but thinking of them as things you tap into rather than things that are threatened by whether you succeed or not. Mm. I think separating those, separating the identity from the creation, realizing that the identities you have help you create, but they are not the same thing as the creation. That to me is liberating. And I think ties into all of these. If you need to add a pseudonym to separate yourself from your ideas, awesome, do it. If that doesn't matter to you, then you know there's other areas in your life where your creation may be so personal that you can't see what you don't see. And so find the people or the vocabulary or the space that you need in order to give yourself that separation so you can create things that do make you and your audience happy. Amen. Love that. Well, you know, do you have a question for us on anything creative related? No, not you, Shane, you listening that you'd like to hear on this show. Well, visit us at creativehotlineshow.com from your phone or computer to leave us a voicemail. We are here to answer your questions. So put us to work. And in our next episode, we're actually going to tag on to what we were just talking about 
creative collaboration and the people with whom we collaborate. So send in your questions on that topic if you have them. We're excited to dig into this. And I think, you know, maybe we'll have a little creative conflict in the midst of this, Alan. I don't know. Well, speaking of things that we're not conflicted about, one thing we're not conflicted about is the fact that you should subscribe. Yeah, you've been listening. You listen for 30 minutes. I know you're feeling good. Well, hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts or the follow button in Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just be sure to subscribe. And we want to say thank you for listening to us and thank you for subscribing. We really appreciate it. And we love you, don't we? We, Yeah, we love you. We love you. We love you. Bye, Shane. Bye, Alan. Bye.